Well, good morning. Uh, great to be together today. You know, nearly 25 years ago, Gary Chapman's book, The Five Love Languages, came out. And if you're not familiar with the book, it, it did become an instant bestseller. And in it, he argues that there are particular languages, uh, uh, care languages, you might say, in which each of us are most likely to show or to recognize receiving uh, aspects of affection and care. After that, because it was such a huge success, several other similar books came out. So shortly after that, he produced five love languages of a teenager, five love languages of children, five love languages of singles, and there even uh, is a five love languages uh, of military members. And I'm thinking, okay, if I'm in the military, one of my love languages is definitely do not shoot me. That is my key love language. But in every one of those aspects, I have to ask the question, when it comes to what it means to be a disciple, to be a follower of Christ, is it possible that the Lord has given each of us, regardless of your background or your generation, is it possible that the Lord has given each of us an ultimate love language by which we can communicate together? And I believe our text this morning of Galatians 2 gives us an insight, it gives us a picture, a video, of what that love language is. So Jesus in John 15 says that greater love have no one than this than one would lay their life down for a friend. And the scene we're going to see play out in Galatians chapter 2 is Paul laying his life down for Peter to directly, clearly, and courageously rebuke him because his life and behavior have drifted into a stumbling block of decisions for the church. I'm talking about this reality that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have turned from sin and self and repented and placed your faith and trust in Jesus to be your king, the Lord Jesus Christ has given you a love language that is the love language of genuine rebuke. It's a love language we wouldn't choose for ourselves and say, I'm not sure I want to express that love language. That doesn't sound quite as nice as words of affirmation or personal touch, but it's one that the Lord has wired us to operate, and He has saved us and called us into a congregation of believers to demonstrate this act of love one for another consistently and continually. It is a gracious gift of God. So as you have your Bibles, open to Galatians chapter 2. We'll begin in verse 11. And my prayer for us, my hope, is that the Lord would use this text to give each of us a greater clarity and courageousness to demonstrate what's it mean to show the love language of rebuke to my brother and sister in Christ. And then secondly, if a brother or sister in Christ comes and rebukes me, then I would see the true love and sacrifice that this person is making for me. So church, let's go to our text here, Galatians chapter 2. We're going to notice first and foremost, we're going to look at these two components of rebuke, two major insights for us that we are to apply to our life. The first is this, that disciples best love one another by prioritizing their siblings' vertical relationship with God over their horizontal relationship with each other. Disciples best love one another by prioritizing their siblings' vertical relationship with God over our horizontal relationship 
with one another. So let me explain two components to this. The first is that serious error requires serious conversation. This is why this must be a part of our love language. It's how the Lord wired us. Serious error, it requires serious conversation. Look at verse 11. It says, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. FYI, when you'll hear me refer to Cephas, that's talking about Peter. Hear me say Peter, thank Cephas in your mind. So tie those together. Uh, If you're joining us new on this series through Galatians, you can get online and listen to uh, the last Sunday sermon of uh, December when I went over the background and history. But I want to give you some of that as a reminder, refresher, so this text can jump out to you even more in the 3D imagery that it should have. Antioch, if you remember, is the third largest city in the Roman Empire. About 500,000 people. That's incredible for that place and time. 65,000 of those people were Jews. This is important to recognize because as Christianity is entering into these regions, remember Galatia is like the regions, Antioch is one of the cities, you have congregations that are sprouting out of believers that are coming to faith in Christ, and many of them are ethnically Jewish, dominant. And so we can say even though Antioch is this major Roman city, the congregations likely would have been intermixed with people of of, uh, Gentile background, that's non-Jewish, and Jewish background. And so the question is, how do they go about Gentile believers in Jesus Christ and Jewish believers in Jesus Christ, how do they operate as one congregation when it comes to things like the Old Testament civil laws? So here's what we're talking about. Here's what we want to catch right at the very beginning. If you can catch this, the rest of this is going to be smooth like butter. I don't know if that is appropriate or not coming up to lunch. I shouldn't use food allergies, not allergies. My wife has food allergies. Now I'm getting too personal for you. You don't want to know this. All right. Now that I've completely lost you, let's jump start back in. Okay. So the question becomes, you have these, let's imagine this side of the congregation here is Gentile believers. We're in the same church. This side is ethnic Jewish believers. Now, none of us offer sacrifices anymore. We're in the same church. We all recognize that Jesus Christ laid his life down. Remember, Jesus is the God-man. We sang it a moment ago. He lived a sinless life, the life none of us have lived. And he laid it down on the cross, nailing our sins to his body on the cross, on the tree. He defeated death and he rose again. So there's no more sacrifices. There's no more sacrificial system. It's all been taken care of. We all believe we're saved by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. But the question becomes for Israel that still exists, these Jerusalem congregations in particular, in Judea, in this region that's Jewish dominant, the question becomes, what about the civil laws that God gave us in the Old Testament that separate us from the pagan nations? Should we still follow those? So should the boys still be circumcised on the eighth day? Should we keep not eating pork and these other meats? And what's happening in the church as they come together is a lot of friction begins happening. Because we believe in salvation by grace alone through faith in Christ alone. And yet, these believers over here, these Jewish believers, are struggling with this because they're saying, we look at your life, and some of you are really stuck in sin. So your life would be better if you just took on and embraced all the nationalistic civil laws of what to eat, what to wear, like we do as good Jewish believers in Christ. 
And so what's beginning to happen in the church is several of you are thinking, well, I thought we were right with Christ and had right fellowship. But now we also have to do these things to really actually feel accepted. So you're beginning to feel like JV team Christians, and you're feeling like varsity team Christians. And Peter is coming, and he comes to Antioch, and he appears to be sitting over here and having fellowship with this side of the church and this side of the church. But some guys come from Jerusalem, still with me? Some guys come from Jerusalem, and they tell him, listen, they're not obeying the civil laws. They're not having their boy circus. They're not doing these things. They're eating all this food. You shouldn't be eating with them. You should be prioritizing fellowship with them. So Peter gets up from this side of the church, and he sits on this side of the church. And immediately, all the Jewish believers begin to think, hey, we're right. In order for you to really be accepted, you should also do these things that we're doing as good Jewish believers in Christ. And so you begin to think, I need to do those things as well now to really be a Christian. So you stop eating certain foods altogether. And you begin wearing certain things. And you begin uh, participating in circumcision and all these other things connected to the Old Testament law. And it becomes this huge fracturing element for the local church body. And this, from the very beginning, is what we see. Serious error requires serious conversation. Now, I would imagine that when Peter came to Antioch, the city, he didn't have on his bucket list getting confronted by Paul. And I'd imagine that Paul, while he was there, didn't say, I cannot wait to see Peter so that I can straight up rebuke him to his face. It's going to be awesome. That was not on his bucket list to do. But serious error demands serious conversation. And how did Peter, how was Peter rebuked by Paul? Face to face. Face to face. I want to give us some, some principles maybe here at the very beginning so you might be better equipped, so I might be better equipped in how I can have serious conversations with other individuals when they're in a situation of serious error. So I'm going to give you five little P's. You can write them down on your notes if you like. If you're not taking notes, just move your hand so I feel better like you're actually taking notes. Five P's. The first and the fifth one are the same, by the way. It's prayer. Prayer. Before we ever go to rebuke somebody, we ought to be consistent in prayer. We want to pray that the Spirit of God would convict us as well. But if there's a a plank in our eye. We want the Lord, the Spirit of God, to show that to us before we ever go to somebody. But we want to pray consistently that the Lord would give us wisdom and how to interact with them, to know the time and the place that if we need to address them, that He would not give us peace until we address them. Not to let us sit in that awkward moment, but to be bold and direct. As a matter of fact, Paul consistently asks the churches that he writes to for prayer. Do you know that? About a half a dozen times, Paul writes and says, church, will you pray for me? And he prays for numerous things. But in Ephesians 6 and Colossians 4, are two spots, that he asks for prayer for two elements. Clarity and courage in sharing the gospel. Clarity and courage. So before you ever go and rebuke somebody in the Lord, before you ever go to correct their lifestyle or their language, pray to God that he would give you loving clarity, and courage to share the gospel. Can you think of anything that would need more courage than to go and rebuke an apostle? Right? This is it, right? Here's the, here's the demonstration. Game on. I need clarity in how I'm supposed to address this, and I need courage. 
We should pray for that consistently. So prayer is the first thing we do, but once we do this, it moves into the second P, positions. Positions. Clearly, there's two different positions because he goes to, to Peter face to face. They have two very different positions. So at what point should I correct somebody? At what point is it worth me talking to somebody to their face if we have a, this, this, this differing positions? It's when you realize you're at a point that your two positions can no longer coexist in the same body of fellowship. It's where it reads a, a point of impasse. You hold to this, I hold to this, I love you and I care about you, but I believe you are wrong. You are against the word in this. Because I love you, that's going to cause, number three, a problem. A problem. Prayer positions and problems. This is a problem. What does Paul say that Peter's problem is? You stand condemned. Peter, you're condemned before God for what's happening to the, to the fellowship of the church because of your behavior. This is a problem. So when we have the problem, it leads us to, fourthly, what's the proposed solution? What are we going to do about it? And there is only one way forward to seek reconciliation in this way, and it's this. Peter, you need to publicly repent. You have sinned publicly and caused massive problems in the congregation. You must publicly repent for what you've done. That's the only way forward because you stand condemned before God for what's happened to the church. And then fifthly, we go to prayer. We close in prayer for somebody. Now, you probably know this is true. But have you ever tried to reconcile with somebody and they rejected you? They spurned it? What can happen to your heart? You can become bitter, can't you? So fifthly, we ought to pray, Lord, do not let my heart become bitter towards this person. Spirit of God, convict me. Don't let me be bitter but rather pray for that person to come to repentance. Did you know, 2 Timothy 2.25, did you know that repentance, the very aspect of a change of mind that leads to a change of action, repentance itself is a gift of God. If you've come to faith in Christ, you have been a recipient of God's good and lavish grace upon your life. That the cross of Christ went from offensive to attractive. You've come to faith in Christ and He's granted you repentance, and belief, Philippians 1.29. So those that don't receive confrontation lovingly in the word, we are called to pray for their repentance as a gift of God. And I don't know about you, but I know if you pray for somebody, it's really hard to stay long-term angry at them. It doesn't mean that relationship has to look the same later on in life, but I know if I'm spending time in prayer for somebody for the Lord to bless them, to bless them with repentance... What's it going to do to my heart? It's going to soften my heart to make sure it doesn't grow hard. So I'd encourage you in that way. Serious error requires serious and direct prayerful conversation. But what about our actions? Look under verse 12. Serious error requires a serious conversation. And, and what about their actions? What can we notice in verse 12? Shifts in behavior often reveal shifts in belief. A shift in behavior. How somebody's living often reveals a shift in belief. Those of you that are teachers or parents or coaches, you know this, don't you? You read the body language of your athletes, of your child, of your students, of your classmates. You know if somebody's behavior begins to get out of line, something has probably changed with what they actually 
believe. Look at verse 12. It says, For before certain men came from James, James is in Jerusalem, James the half-brother of Jesus. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, the Gentile believers in the church. But when they came, what happened? He drew back and he separated himself. Why? Because he feared the circumcision party. Peter drew back. He drew back. That language, drew back, is similar in the Old Testament what a good Hebrew would do if they were before something or someone unclean. They were called to draw back and remove themselves. Do you see that? So Peter's not a bad guy. Peter's not meaning to cause division. He thinks what he's doing is what he's supposed to do. He's drawing back from fellowship with these Gentile believers because he's been persuaded by the Jewish believers that are coming from Jerusalem. But why is he doing so? Well, simplify it. Look, he simplifies it for us. Why is he do so? The last four words of verse 12. Fearing the circumcision party. Fear is what drives Peter to change his position. Now, I want to show you something that seems to me like a parallel story, almost like a parallel account we could put together with this. So keep your finger marked on this page and look back a little bit early in your Bible to the Gospel of Luke. Let's look at Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. One of these Gospel accounts. The Gospels are like biographies of Jesus. But they're biographies, but they're written to persuade you to turn and believe in Jesus Christ as your King. And in this account that is the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, Matthew has just had an encounter. Matthew, Levi, same guy. He just had an encounter with Jesus. And Matthew ultimately opens his home and responds to Jesus, and he gathers up a bunch of his tax collector buddies. And believe it or not, I know it's nothing like our culture today. I know the IRS people, they're all completely loved Embraced, celebrated in our culture, great people. But the tax collectors in the first century world were, of course, despised. They often ripped people off. They took advantage of people left and right. And so Jesus goes to the home of Levi. With the, he's eating with these tax collectors and sinners. And look at the account. And we're going to draw a parallel to it with what Peter's doing here a few years later. So verse 29, look at this. It says, and Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? I.e., why haven't you drawn back from them? What are you doing? Verse 31, what's Jesus say? And Jesus answered them, those who are well... Those who are think they're good with God, they don't think they need Jesus. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. If you're a Christian, don't forget the first aspect of your confession, which is what? I am a broken sinner before God. I am a broken sinner and hater of God. And I deserve his just wrath on my life. That's the key confession of a believer. That's step one, right? 
And Jesus says, hey, these, these sinners, they know they're sinners and tax collectors. Nobody else will have anything to do with them. You don't have to persuade them that they're broken. Those are the ones I've come to be made well. So if in your life today, if you think, I'm good, I've got this, I kind of need Jesus, but not really. But Jesus says, no, you're totally wrong. You are broken and you need Jesus. You need me. So that scene put a pause on it, time capsule. Fast forward a couple decades, a decade or so, and now we're in Antioch. Peter is eating with Gentile believers who would have had the reputation of being sinners and unclean. And in this story, the Pharisees and the scribes who represent the Jewish brothers that have come from Jerusalem, who are upset that they're not obeying certain laws, they come and confront Peter and they say, Peter, why are you eating with them? And Peter, instead of being like Jesus, who responds to them with the gospel, Peter gets up from the table. He turns their back to them. And he goes over here. We don't know for sure if this is talking about the Lord's Supper, he's no longer eating with them, or it's just meals in general. But the point is this. What changed everything? Fear. Fear of man. How do you spell peer pressure? F-E-A-R. How do you spell peer pressure? F-E-A-R. And every single one of us knows exactly what we're talking about, don't we? Oh, we all want to belong. We all want to belong. We all want to belong to different groups. But in Christ is the only place that we're actually neutral. We can truly belong in Christ because he knows our brokenness deeper than we could ever imagine. Proverbs 29, 25 says that the fear of man is a snare. It's a trap. Not a snare drum. It's a snare. It's a trap. But whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. The fear of man is a trap. Peter, fearing the brothers from Jerusalem, has set a trap for the entire church. And the entire church is falling for it, hook, line, and sinker. And it's so serious that it causes him to have to rebuke him to his face. See, listen. Shifts in behavior often reveal shifts in belief. We give us some point of applications for this. Number one, it's going to be our next steps. I'm going to spoil our next steps right now, by the way. Honest question. Am I known well enough by my congregation, by my church family, that they can speak in and rebuke my life when I'm out of step in my behavior? Am I known well enough? And if not, what am I going to do about it? And number two, the next final step, next step we're going to have is this question this. Do I know my church family well enough that I can look into their life as well and observe it and say, you know what, this is out of line with the gospel. Not walking around like a teacher with a ruler and saying, hey, get in line. But like a loving parent, fearful for the future of their child that says, no, 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 no. Proverbs says to spear the rod is an act of hate, right? To discipline is to love a brother or sister in Christ. Very simple application, small groups. If you're not connected with a small group, get involved with a small group. In a group this size, I'd like to think that we'll be able to notice if you're gone for two or three weeks in a row. And that'll come up in our staff meeting oftentimes, by the way. Hey, I haven't seen so-and-so. Have you seen him? And we'll contact that person. And usually it's just, hey, I was out of town. I haven't been here for a while. Okay. But sometimes, you know what it is? 
Sometimes it reveals a deeper issue. Now, it's harder to do here, but in a small group of like six to ten, a dozen people, it's pretty easy to notice when like 15% of your group is gone for three weeks in a row, right? To get involved with a small group, help to shepherd each other in that way. But another one, if you're one of our ladies, the, the women's study that's coming up, I was really neat to be able to see what they do and how Kim arranges that. It starts not Tuesday and a Wednesday night. Tuesday nights and Wednesday mornings starting next week. The ladies start off as a big group. They eat good food, and then they break down into smaller groups. And I think that is so healthy for shepherding other people to give a safe environment to talk and to share with, with each other. So I encourage you to get involved with that if you're one of our ladies. And the third one, if you have a teenager or a little one, you want their children's pastor and youth pastor to know them well enough. You want those youth leaders to know your kid well enough that when they see their behavior change, they can say, hey, is something different? They're not talking anymore in Bible study. Or when I try to look at them, they don't make eye contact with me anymore. You want that to be the case in your child's life. And so I encourage you to dive in, ask those questions. But first, disciples best love one another by prioritizing their siblings' vertical relationship with God over their horizontal relationship. Let's continue on to verse 13. We're going to notice secondly that disciples best love one another, best demonstrate this love language of rebuke by prioritizing the fellowship of the local church over their personal reputation. In this way, we can do what? Verse 13, we can never underestimate how quickly the schemes of the devil can spread. We can never underestimate how quickly the schemes of the devil can spread. Verse 13, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with them so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Antioch is the place where the word Christian is invented. Christians didn't get together and think of a marketing campaign. The perfect name will be Christians. It's going to sell so many t-shirts. That's not what they did. It was a label put on it by the Antioch people that saw these Jewish and Gentile Christians and their lives began to look like little Christs. Literally, Christian folk, Christ folk. I imagine there was some good southern Texan there, right? Christ folk. That was terrible. If there was a third service, I definitely would not use that one again. <laughs> Insight. Good to know. How could a church, known by their deep flavor in the gospel, be so deceived? Any of us can find ourselves believing false things and being led away and enticed in false beliefs. But what did Paul do? Paul placed the gospel fellowship of the local church beyond his reputation. Can you imagine? Imagine you're Paul. What would be going through your mind as you saw Peter, the apostle, the one who was with Jesus, the one who walked on water for real, walked on water, and you saw Peter acting against the gospel? What fear would be going through your mind as you know the Spirit of God is leading you to confront him? What's going to happen? We've got to do PR work on this. Oh my goodness. Two of the apostles, the apostle to the Jews, Peter, and the apostle to the Gentiles, Paul, are fighting they're confronting everybody. They don't have it all together. The whole church is going to dissolve. Imagine the fear that would come into their minds. To love each other ultimately as disciples of Christ is to say, no, I will prioritize the biblical 
gospel-centered fellowship of the church above how people view me. Anybody can slip. Anybody can stumble. Even Barnabas, it says. Even Barnabas. Do you know what his name means? Barnabas means son of encouragement, son of peace. He goes from being a son of encouragement to a son of discouragement because he gets sucked into this false way of thinking and believing. Of Barnabas, in Acts 11.24, Luke says, He is a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. There is no better title you could put. As a matter of fact, if I changed my Facebook profile or I changed my bio on our church page and all it said was, Brent Bullard, a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, you'd be like, that is the cockiest dude I've ever seen in my life. Well, no part of that guy. He made that up. He made them put that on there. But that's what Luke says about Barnabas. And what happens to Barnabas? Even Barnabas is led astray. You and I must never think we're beyond being led astray. We must embrace accountability over our lives because a whole church, a leader can drift, I can drift, and the church can drift away from gospel-centeredness. Listen, it's not that long ago. It's not that long ago that churches that were predominantly white would not share communion with African-American brothers and sisters in Christ because they were African-American. It's not that long ago. Don't ever think we can't drift from the gospel. Don't ever think you in your own personal life can't drift from the gospel. All of us can. And if we don't think we can, we are saying, I am better than Peter, I am better than Barnabas, and we are better as a church than the body at Antioch where the word Christian first developed. What a statement of foolish pride. So what do we do with that? What do we do? Embrace accountability in your life. Embrace accountability. Pray that God would rise up in your life and dig into the local church fellowship so much that you would personally invite believers in Jesus Christ to speak out when your life and your lips, when my life and my lips begin to drift from the gospel. Listen, I will say this for as long as you will have me as your senior pastor. I believe one of the greatest gifts that the Lord gives the church is meaningful church membership. It is a meaningful statement of accountability that says, I want you to hold me accountable in my beliefs. I want you to hold me accountable in my walk with the Lord and my desire for holiness. I want you to hold me accountable when I'm drifting from congregational attendance. I want you to hold me accountable, and I want to hold you accountable in these things. That is a gift of God. It's not something bad or scary. It is an open reception to say, I need accountability, and the Lord has given me the gracious gift of accountability. Oh, but how fear can make it seem like a bad thing. Am I right? Oh, but God is good. What in a gift. Invite accountability and expectation of that reality. Never underestimate it. But also, verse 14, never overestimate the power of stepping up for the truth of the gospel. Never overestimate. Never overestimate the power of stepping up. It's never too late. This is the good part. Right? This is where we begin to smile. Because the good news is that the last text makes us say, oh no, what if I drift? But this part of the verse, verse 14, makes us say, Oh, thank you, Lord, it's not too late. Oh, thank you, Lord, it's not too late. Look at verse 14. 
He says, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like the Jews? And we're going to unpack this more next week's sermon as we continue on this interaction. We're going to really dive into that, what that means. Because this becomes the lens for chapter 3 and 4 of Galatians. What he's saying to Peter is he's giving him some of the reasoning and the logic. He's saying, Peter, we don't make sacrifices anymore. So why would we go and make the Gentile brothers and sisters begin to live under the civil law when you and I don't keep the ceremonial law that Jesus satisfied? We're free in Christ. So live by the Spirit, chapter 5 and 6. We're going to drive that home for us. What's he do here? This conjunction, but, changes everything. Paul practices exactly what he asks Timothy to do. You can write down this reference, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 19 and 20. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 19 and 20. What Paul says to Timothy, he practices right here, and in this account, which I believe is right before Acts 15, historically. But 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 19 through 20, he says, listen, this is pretty amazing. Look at this. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now look at this. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them. Privately? No, they're elders. If they persist in sin and everybody knows about it, what do you do? Rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. See that? He practices exactly what he preaches. He goes to Peter. There's no special exception for leadership. Doesn't that make you angry in life when you see it seems like the leaders have a different rule of, set of rules that they live by? It's not what Paul does. He even rebukes Peter to his face. There is no hearsay possible because everybody heard him say it to Peter's face. Peter, you're living like a hypocrite and you're tripping up the fellowship of the church, so repent. I love you. Repent. That's love. That's love. Never overestimate the power of stepping up in the truth of the gospel. None of us like conflict, I hope. None of us like conflict. But one of the sweetest gifts that the Lord will ever give us in our lives is believers who love our relationship with the Lord and the good of the congregation more than even our friendship with them. That they would love us enough to point us to the truth of the gospel, to realign us where we find ourselves adrift. That is your love language. That is our love language. That is how we lay our lives down one for another as a church, to lovingly risk everything, to point them back to the gospel because the gospel is worth it. Our purpose is to make disciples. May that always be said of us for his glory. Our next steps, I've already spoiled them for you, so it shouldn't take us too long to go over them. Number one, am I known well enough by my church family that they could actually hold me accountable if I step out of line from the truth of the gospel? And if not, what are you going to do about it? Second question, just like that, how can I better get to know others in my church family so that I can actually hold them accountable 
if they step out of line from the truth of the gospel. One of the reasons we intentionally put our announcements at the end of the service is that very possibly as you walk through the next steps, you might say, hey, you know what? That's a spot that I can take a very practical next step to apply the word of God that's been preached. That's our hope for you, that that would be a meaningful time of taking a clear next step. Now, this morning is the Lord's Supper Sunday, last Sunday of the month. We take the Lord's Supper together. And I was so excited. I didn't do this on purpose. But what an incredible Sunday to partake of the Lord's Supper and what the Lord's Supper really does for us. As those servers come forward, I want to explain this. I want to imagine that it's a Lord's Supper Sunday in Galatia at Antioch. Imagine the hostility that would be here. Imagine the turmoil that could be in our congregation of this side feeling like this side has been judging us. And this side feeling like this side isn't really qualified for full fellowship in the church. What does the Lord's Supper do to us? It makes us leave our preferences and come to, not Brent's table, not Grace's table, the Lord's table. It makes us like little kids called out of their room. Come to Dad's table. And what we do is we remember not our offenses against each other, but our offenses are ultimately against the God of all creation. And God in His great love for you while you were yet a sinner against Him would send His Son who would take on the fullness of man, fully God, fully man, that he would live a sinless life that we have not lived and cannot live, nor do we desire to live. And in his great love for us, the Son would come in full obedience to the Father, and he would lay his life down on the cross. His sinless, perfect body would be broken for us, fulfilling all the demands of the law. His blood and life would be spilled for us so that we might become children of God, siblings now together. What happens in the Lord's Supper is a clear identification that says, I am with Jesus. I believe Jesus lived and died for me, that his body was broken for me, that his blood was spilled for me, but that we don't take this at his grave because his grave is empty. He defeated death. His body has risen and he's ascended to the right hand of the Father. So even as we partake of this, we declare that we believe the Lord has risen and all who turn and place their faith and trust will have forgiveness of sins. And this is a foreshadowing of what eternity will be like for the believer. You see, if you've not committed your life to Christ, this isn't for you. Because the believer believes that we will be in communion with Jesus Christ for all eternity and with his people. And it's a foretaste of that. So there's this present moment also that we look at our lives and say, Lord, if there is sin in my life, will your spirit convict me? And I repent of that before you, Lord, and do that before you partake. And if there is an offense in the body against another church member, against another believer in Jesus Christ, seek reconciliation before partaking. You know that we do this at the end of every month. If you didn't know, you know now. And if you find yourself having an offense against another believer, you make sure it's reconciled before the next time we partake. Don't let that stay on your heart because this isn't about us. It's about the one that one day we will partake of this bodily. We will all that are in Christ eat and drink with the Lord. Isn't that sweet?
So look around, celebrate. This is your family in Christ. We are one in Christ. We rejoice in Him. Is He good? Amen. Is He risen? Has He ascended to the right hand of the Father and knows what we're doing right now? Yes, He is good. Let me pray for us before we distribute and partake. Lord, You are so good. You are so kind. We thank You for the salvation we have in Christ. We do thank You for the chance to come together as one body, as believers, who confess faith in Jesus Christ, that we are unashamed to proclaim the Lord's death and resurrection until Christ should come again for us. We love you, and we give you glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we partake this, if you're new with us, you're going to notice that in these cups, there are two cups. So you're going to take both cups out, and we're going to partake of them one together at a time. We'll read a text from 1 Corinthians 11 about the body, and we'll eat the bread together as one church family. And we'll do it again as we partake of the cup of the Lord, remembering his blood spilled for us before we thereafter stand and sing uh, to our good and risen King. Let's partake.